that you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use it, Lord God, to take care of your people, to take care of the world, and to edify your church here and around the earth. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, last week, we were in Matthew chapter 6, and now we're going back there. And we talked about the phrase there that says, our Father who art in heaven, and how incredibly important it is to grasp that God is our Father, that he has declared himself our Father, he has declared us his children, and he has loved us in such a way as that there's a familial bond between God and his people. And today we're going to talk about the next clause, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, this is built right into the prayer. So a lot of this is kind of obvious, but it also is pretty deep. Prayer is a mystery to most Christians. We, we know exactly what it is till somebody asks us, right? And we sometimes have a hard time fathoming the depths of it. We want to pray, but we don't want to be kooky, right? We don't want to be weird with it, but we want to talk to God. And frankly, we want him to talk to us. And that's not at all wrong. But we do know that God spoke to some people in different ways than he necessarily spoke to us. I have never heard the voice of God speaking to me, telling me to do a specific thing. Frankly, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? You got a problem, you got something on your mind, you ask God, you want to hear some responses, right? Maybe a list with bullet points and details of how to get these things done, but he does not tend to do that. There, even in that little part of the catechism that we read today, we talked about how the scriptures, God did choose specific special people to speak to them his word, and we have his word as a light in a dark place. Jeremiah had this thing going on in his ministry where he was preaching to the people the very word of God right from God's mouth to his ear, and they frankly did not want to hear it. And he has this time where, well, all the prophets, Jeremiah, they're saying everything's going to be great. And Jeremiah has to tell them, those people that have a word from the Lord, and he's saying it in a facetious way, let them carry on their word. But we have the word of God made sure in Scripture, and it's like a fire that destroys stone and rock. So there was a difference. Every word of the Lord is not from the Lord. One of the reasons it is hard to talk about this in contemporary culture is because it's done badly so often. We turn on the television, and there's a guy with incredibly expensive hair. And it's big, and he looks good, and he's got a jet, right? He's got a very successful ministry worth billions of dollars. And he's sitting there telling you, God wants to make you rich. God wants to make you famous. If you send him your seed of faith money, well, perhaps a 1000 or $750, he'll bless you tenfold and give you $10,000. Now, to me, that's just good economics. <laughs> but he knows exactly what the will of God is for your life. And plain old pastors, frankly, we don't. So that's compelling. That's powerful, right? It is a lie, but it's compelling. And it speaks to us in a way, and they tell us how to pray, and they tell us what to pray, to get the things that we want. There's always a distinction in God's economy between getting the things we want 
and getting the things that we need. God does say that he will not let his people whom he loves who have dedicated themselves to his service to walk about in rags. That's true, right? But he doesn't say he's going to give us everything we want. I've told you guys a couple of times about my helicopter story. You're about to hear it again. Are you ready for this? <laughs> my Sunday school teacher at Upland Southern Baptist Church, where I was baptized, when I was about eight or nine years old, she told me, whatever you play for in Jesus' name, he will give it to you. So I prayed for a helicopter. It made perfect sense to me that I should have it. And I prayed hard and I prayed long and I prayed persevering. And guess what never came? The helicopter. And as I got a little older, I started to understand insurance rates and liabilities and fuel costs and storage. And, and licenses and things like this. And I started to understand why when God did not give me a helicopter, he was just looking out for my best interest. But I was told something about God that made me disappointed in him. But my disappointment was my misunderstanding, not his failure. Especially for those of you that have lived a few years, you'll look back through your life and you'll see the five or ten times when you asked God for something and you asked him so hard, and he didn't give it to you, and now you look back on it and you go, thank God he's God and I'm not, right? And then there are other times where we ask him for something that we think has got to be in his will, and he still says no. So these are the things that test our faith, we call it, right? He does not always give what we think is best. There is this line in Romans chapter 8 that we read a couple of weeks ago that says, God works out all things for the good of those who love him, that are called according to his purpose. Now, that's a line of faith, not a line of sight, right? We talked a little about the difference between faith, hope, and love. Faith is believing God. Hope is believing God for something that you haven't seen yet. And love, well, love's eternal. Love will never change. But sometimes we just have to believe that God is good and right, even when the things that we see in our lives are not necessarily what we think we should see. Some people are born poor. Some people are born rich, right? My kids have noticed that Trump has a, like a 12-year-old son that has his own entire floor on Trump Tower. And that makes, immediately makes them think, why don't I have my own floor around the house? I would like my own floor. We're at different stations, we're in different places, we're in different nations. We have all of these differences, and we can't think to ourselves, God is immune to understanding where he has placed us in life and for what purpose. If we get into the divine geometry of these things, God places us where he thinks absolutely the best for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, even if it's a mystery to us. As I said, sometimes later in life we look back and we think to ourselves, you were right you were good. But one of the most common things is that right now in front of us, we don't understand those things. So we get to this place of, okay, if his will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, how much of God's will do you think gets done in heaven? All of it, right? And so we're in this process from the time of the coming of Jesus and his ascension to being seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven until now he's working out the kingdom down here inch by inch, soul by soul, person by person, but they're not quite identical yet. His will in heaven is perfectly done. His will on the earth is being done through time. 
more and more until eventually heaven and earth, they're going to be identical in that the will of God is manifest in both places. So how do I know what the will of God is for me, right? Well, there are a few classic dangerous answers to this. One is the hairs raise on the back of your neck. That's a classic bad answer. You've got this itchy feeling that you get whenever you're supposed to do something for the will of God. You know, you know we can will things into our, own, into our own imagination, right? It's very easy to think, this must be, I feel like this is the will of God because I want it, right? We're always biased in our own case. It's interesting that there's nowhere in the Bible where anybody felt the Holy Spirit, I know that sounds a little strange, but the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a person, just as the Son is a person, and just as the Father is a person, and he teaches us, he guides us, he instructs us, but we cannot reduce him to mere carnal elements. It's very dangerous, right? It's kind of like the person that gets on television and tells you that God's will for your life is to send them money. It's not, but how do you know the difference? It's a little bit difficult to tell somebody that the entire Bible is how you know the will of God for your life. Every once in a while, God might impose himself on you in such a way as to show you directly it's this, not that, it's that, not this. But for the most part, he's going to teach you wisdom and understanding and all of these things so that you can know the will of God to your best possible degree, but he's not going to send you an email, right? Let me talk to you about a couple of times when people wanted to know the will of God so bad. Take a look at Samuel chapter 17. Excuse me, it's chapter 28. 17 is the next thing we'll read. Now, in this story, we have to remember that when God tells us something in the Bible, it's usually in the context of story. And that's because we learn best in that, but we are intended to get the implications of a text. This is a time when long after Saul and David had their falling out and Saul was persecuting David and Saul, the king of Israel, was actually persecuting the people of God. But God hadn't spoken to him in a long time. Now, God rarely, if ever, spoke to Saul directly, but he did have prophets like Samuel. And Samuel was the prophet that would tell Saul the will of God for him, which he felt like he needed to, to know in order to be strong. And it says, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. 
Now, you guys have seen people around these days, it's legal now. There are palm readers and soothsayers and things like that you can go to and you give them money and they will tell you the will of God for you. You might even get the cards, right? The tarot cards and you might put them out in order to find out what the will of God is. We all have this compulsion to try to figure out the future and try to know what's going to happen so that we can feel safe, right? One of the things about that is that's not a way that God has told us it's okay to feel safe. The Philistines assembled and came in attempt at Shuah. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they were encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. One of the ways that we will commonly be tested in our fidelity to the Lord is through fear. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul to his servants said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go in and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now here in the ESV version, they tend to lighten up the language. Like the NIV, where they just have nicer language they want to use. The old language for this is a witch, right? And he's already inquired of the Lord, and the Lord would not speak to him. We remember those great verses in Scripture, like the prayer of a righteous man is effective and powerful, right? Well, the prayer of somebody who's in rebellion against God, God will not listen to them. So here he goes on to say, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him and they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done and how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. So she's arguing that Saul is against necromancers and witches and things like that. She doesn't know that he's Saul. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, as an old man coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me, bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. You see how desperate he is. He's willing to break the, the Lord's law in order to get information from the Lord in order to save himself. And Samuel said, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Isn't the most devastating thing you could ever hear in your life are the words, the Lord has become your enemy. There are these places in scripture that say things like, if you are offended by another person or, or you've offended them, if you've done some kind of wrong to another person, you always have the Lord to go to because he can intercede between the two of you and he can either bring peace or he can bring justice, right? Right? 
But if the Lord himself is your enemy, now who's going to help you? And Saul knows this. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So, you know, we want to understand the psychology here. I know this is a little heavy, but you've got a guy that really does understand the ways of God. He's a very religious man. He's studied the scriptures. He's known the prophets. He knows how God works. And that's why he implements this plan. He wants help against the Philistines, and God won't give it to him. And when he raises up Samuel and speaks to him, even though they're divided by some unconscionable means that we can't understand, he was able to communicate with Samuel, and Samuel tells him the will of the Lord. He does. He says, this very thing that you fear, God himself has brought it against you. In other words, there's no way to escape from this, right? This is the thing we do when we want to know so badly for self-protection or for power or for profit, for all of these things. We will do almost anything to get the word of the Lord. And sometimes it frankly is not the word of the Lord at all. Sometimes it's the word of our own conscience. Have you ever seen the candles in the grocery store? If you get a green one, it brings you money. You guys don't get that? If there were more Catholics here, you guys would totally know what I was talking about. I'm from California, so we got lots of Catholics. We know exactly about the candles. In, you go into Kroger or Ralph's, you get this entire row full of candles, right? But there's a different color for what you want to get out of God, right? White candle for this, blue candle for that. You got to know your color system to make it all work. Let's go now to Samuel 16. <clears throat> 17. Now, this is the story of David and Goliath, right? Very common story. We love to tell it in Sunday school, but it is not a Sunday school story. It is every bit an adult-level story. And it's a heavy story about a man that understood and knew the will of God. If you remember, a couple chapters earlier in 15, God sends Samuel, because Samuel's still alive, and he sends him out to find the next king of Israel, because Saul had ever already committed his sins, and he'd already been eject- rejected by God. So Samuel is called to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, and he goes there, and it's one of the sons of Jesse that's going to be ordained and called by the will of God, the next son, the next king of Israel. And he goes and he sees the first son, and the first son is just like Saul. He's taller than all the rest. He's strong. He's a strapping guy. He's the kind of guy that you and I would choose as king. Very cool. George Washington, basically, stately, well-spoken, And yet God tells Samuel right in his ear, this is not the one. So he says, Jesse, bring in the next son. And the next son's pretty good too. About an inch shorter, but still looking pretty good as far as sons go, right? And God tells him, this isn't the one. And he brings in the next son and the next son. And he goes through seven sons. And at this time, Samuel is frankly starting to freak out. It's like we're running out of sons. And he goes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well... We've got David, but he's out in the field watching the sheep. Jesse thought so little of his youngest son, David, that he didn't even invite him to the party. When Samuel was very specific, bring all your sons, he's like, but not David. Not like all your sons, because David was young and David was weak, right? And probably not very impressive. Otherwise, he would have invited him. 
And then as soon as Samuel gets out to where the sheep are and he sees David, the boy there taking care of the sheep, God tells him, this is the one because I have chosen a man after my own heart. So he looked right into David's heart to see what kind of a person he was. He didn't look at the outside things. And frankly, the outside things are changeable, right? Now, the next chapter, very interesting. First, Samuel takes out a flask of oil and he pours it on David's head and he anoints him the new king of Israel. That might be a little presumptuous, being that he doesn't get the crown for about another 20 years, but he's already been ordained by God to that end. And then it says, because of his sins, God actually sends demons to persecute Saul. Saul's the king of Israel, and when he tries to sleep, he's persecuted in his sleep by these bad dreams and things happen to him, and nobody can help him. But one of the guys knows about this kid named David, who's a good guitar player. (laughs) And he calls David, and David comes, and whenever Saul is being persecuted by dark forces... As a consequence of his sin, David plays songs on his lyre, and the demons depart, and Saul experiences peace. That's a part that's usually left out of the story, because it's a little spiritual and hard to understand, right? But haven't we all been at those places where things are a little bit cleaner and things are a little bit dirtier? So we do kind of understand that sometimes things are easy and sometimes things are hard. Well, Saul was getting it hard. Because God had raised him up and made him the most prominent, powerful person in the country, and still he turned his back on God. So then we get to the next part of the story in chapter 17. Finally, we get to David and Goliath, right? So they're lined up against the Philistines, and all the Philistines are on this side of a valley, on a mountain. And all the people of Israel are on this side of a valley, right? And the valley is between them, and they're all lined up and ready for battle. And one of the Philistines, a giant named Goliath, comes out and he starts to mock the armies of the living God. He starts to say this, hey, we don't all have to die today. You send down one guy and we'll send down one guy. And if we win, you'll serve us. You'll be our slaves. And if you win, we'll serve you. We'll be your slaves. Representational combat. You guys have all read about this in the books and things like that. One warrior against one warrior, except for their warrior is a giant. And how many of the Israelites do you think volunteered to go down and fight him? They certainly had thousands of guys there, battle-hardened warriors, right? How many were going to go down and fight Goliath? Nobody, right? But here's the thing. What if you've got some weak, schlumpy guy, the one like me, that wants to go down and fight Goliath? Do you let him? I'll fight him! (laughs) You don't let him because he'll lose, right? So David is too young. He's not even allowed to go to the battle. But his father is wise. So Jesse says, I've got all of these very nice expensive foods, right? I want you to take these to the captains that are in authority above my sons and give them to them. And give my sons these sandwiches. He basically says that, right? He knows what he's doing. It's a little bit of a bribe. It's a kiss on the cheek. It's not a bad idea. But he's looking out for his sons. And David's only job is to go there and take the food, right? And so he gives it to him, and then he hears the giant. And he says, what does the king say? What happened to the guy who goes out here and kills this giant? He gets to marry the king's daughter. He gets to become a prince in the household. Plus, his father doesn't have to pay any more taxes. What would we give for that about now, right? And it sounded pretty good to David. 
And David is full of the Holy Spirit. God did not even tell him to go to the battle. But one of the things he knows is God will not abandon his people in their moment of conflict. So David's like, I'm going to fight him. And the generals are like, yeah, sure. He's, but they take him to Saul. Now, the, if you don't read the previous chapter, you never understand why they took him to Saul. Why would they even dignify this boy to take him before the king? He comes in before Saul, and Saul sees him, and Saul says, yes. This is the boy that could chase away the demons with the song. So he knew God had his hand on him. And Saul is already doing that thing where he's trying to work God against God. He's like, God has his hand on this kid. I'm going to use him to my advantage. And he tries to put his armor on him. And what happened? He can't wear it. And he tries to give him his sword. And what did he do with that? He can't carry it. So he goes down to the river and he gets five smooth stones. And he remembers the fact that when the when he was guarding God's sheep and the bear came against it, he grabbed it by the beard and he killed it with a rock. And when the wolf came, he used his sling and he killed it. When the lions came, he chased them away. And there was this Philistine who in the scriptures, it does say this, I'm not like mocking him or anything, a big, stinky, gnarly, giant Philistine, right? Big, scary to everybody. So then David goes down there with his sling, fully embracing the spirit of God that's upon him. And he's not afraid. And Goliath comes down and he will not fight David. Do you remember this part? He says, what if they sent me out a dog to beat with a stick? He won't even fight him. He feels like they have doubly insulted him by sending out this kid to fight him. And then David says to him, you know, Something like that, I don't know. Maybe his voice dropped, maybe it's, you know. This day I will deliver your head to the beasts of the field and your eyes to the birds of the air. And Goliath turns around and he starts to come. He starts to come at David. And frankly, if he was coming at me, I would have run home. But he starts to come. And instead of running away, it says David advanced to the battle line. He's coming at me, I'm coming at him. And he starts to progress, and he starts to run for him. But before the giant can get close enough to him to unleash his javelin and pin David to the ground, he starts to swing a stone. He places one stone in that sling, and he starts to swing it. And then he unleashes it, and it travels through the air, superintended by the power of his God. And it doesn't just say it hit the giant. It says the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell down on the ground as dead. And then David took Goliath's own sword and he chopped his head off with it just to make sure he didn't get up. <laughs> we see the difference between these two things. You might think to yourself, do you know what's the most common thing where this story fails? When you tell a person the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, and they say, I'm not a righteous person. And you know they're right, because none of us are. But you have been made righteous in Christ, and you have been transformed in such a way as that you seek him daily, 
and you know the will of God as much as you need to. So go forth and do whatever your heart desires because his hand is on you. One of the common things people come to is they come and ask me what college they should go to. God, God has to tell me which college to go to and stuff. And I'm like, God's not going to tell you which college to go to. What do you think? You're going to get a special delivery from Hermes and going to bring down a message? Tell you what, you go to the best college you can and you make the best judgment you can and you do the things God has trained you to do through the wisdom and information and knowledge that he has given you and you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord and you don't worry about the rest. You be holy and you will be happy. Now, it is true that even in the Christian life, even a Christian who's been sanctified by the Holy Ghost, who is righteous before God and under the blood of Jesus Christ, can enter into a mode or time of life when they are not living pleasing to him, right? And you know what almost always happens? If God loves them, things start to go bad. And sometimes they go from bad to worse. But you know, there's been a lot of people who have found an amazing grace of Jesus Christ in a jail cell, haven't there? Or in a hospital bed, or in court, or in a far-off place where they don't have friend. The answer to this that comes from Scripture is, turn it around. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You know, I don't do a lot of turn and burn sermon type stuff, but repent while he may be found, I'm right there, right? If you want the blessing of God and you want his will for your life, turn your life over to his will, whatever it may be. You will still never know the future a single day in your life. You will still never know from one minute to the next if it's not the last breath you'll ever take. But why in the world would it be, right? God's general disposition toward his people all through their lives is to bless them and care for them and cultivate them and protect them. That's his general disposition. There might be ups and downs. There might be seasons of testings. There might be times when you mess it up and have to get it right. But what he's basically trying to do is work out his will through your will in this life. So you already know, even though it's dangerous to tell you this, God's most common expression towards you is he has it in mind to bless you all the time. I have to be careful with that so it doesn't turn into one of those fruity TV things where God wants to bless you. Now send me a check. It does not work that way. But really, isn't your intention toward all of your children to bless them all the time? And don't you correct them when they get out of line or say something to them so that they don't go down a dark path? And doesn't God, who loves us as our Father, do exactly the same thing for us? So here's the thing. When we talk about his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, and that this is within the Lord's prayer, all of these things are included when we say this. We're not just saying his will somewhere far off. We're saying his will in me, his will right here, his will right now. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are a great God to your children, and we praise you and thank you. We pray, Lord God, that we would always know that you're, we are in your will, and in that we would have great confidence. We pray, Lord God, without any vanity, that whatever we put our hands to, whatever you've instructed us to do, whatever you've guided us to put our labors and our energies into, that you would bless these things also, Lord God. We know that you always take joy in blessing your children. And so, Lord God, we just thank you for being who you are. 
We thank you for all of these things in the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing whatever number Rock of Ages is. 133. People of God, look up and receive the blessing. May the Lord our God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.